evangelism more profound than preaching, more personal than simply witnessing, only persuasive when living it, and only honest when loving them. This is what we really have been talking about throughout the series that we have been working on uh, in this new year, 2017. We have been talking about this issue of living uh, gospel-shaped lives. The gospel is God's good news to fallen and lost mankind that we can come back into relationship with our Creator. And this message saves us in a beautiful way by nothing we could ever do, but simply by the mercy and grace of God. But the same message that saves us is meant to now shape our lives. And in shaping our lives, ultimately it makes it easier for us to be able to share this good news with others. And so really, we're talking about evangelism, but we're also talking about more than that. Let me show you how we've been defining this gospel-shaped living. Uh, we looked at being a light in a very, very dark world. And uh, a few weeks ago, uh, right after we started this message, we, we talked about being a united church in a divided world, a united church, if you will. It is by our love for all the peoples of God that they will know that we are his disciples. And what we talked about then was the idea of unity in diversity and how that unity with this unique diversity of ethnicities and generations and cultures ultimately shows the power of God in a unique way, not simply to reconcile us to himself, though that's a miracle every time it happens, but before a watching world more profound to them is not that God can reconcile us to himself, but that God can reconcile such differing peoples to each other. And having a church that is multi-ethnic, multi-generational, a multicultural body where our complexion is becoming more like our community and we have this unity under the headship of Jesus Christ, that is so profound. I heard that. Somebody said amen. Don't be afraid to say amen every once in a while. The word amen, amen merely means true, God's truth. So if you hear some truth being thrown out this morning, don't be afraid to say amen. So let's practice. Amen. All right, there we go. Thank you. Uh, that's very helpful. So, so when you hear truth, that's how we are meant to respond. We are a united church in a divided world. The world doesn't get multiculturalism. The world does not know how to get along. But we can show them what it looks like to get along with very different peoples from very different backgrounds, from very different economic statuses, because we come together under the headship of Jesus Christ. And we can worship with one voice, as we did just a few moments ago. Uh, I, I, I want to thank Tim and Ika for leading us in worship this morning. It was very special and very beautiful, and I want to say thank you to them. Amen. Yes. <laughs> You're getting it. I love this. So we talked about what makes us unique in our world and what gives us this light in darkness is by being this united church, this unity in diversity in a world that is divided. But we also talked about being a very generous church in a very stingy world. It is by our irrational generosity 
irrational generosity, the people are going to know that we are indeed his disciples. And you know, friends, we cannot stop challenging each other and discipling one another until the backbone of greed and envy is broken in our hearts and in our lives. It is in the very fiber of our fallen nature, and it's in our culture because it comes out of our nature. It is how the world operates. And it's not until we see that backbone of greed broken in our lives by the grace and power of God, when our hearts are broken in compassion and our wallets are open in irrational generosity for the needs of others, that we will really prove to the world that we're different. And that happens as we show this generous church in a very stingy world. Now, I, I spoke on this topic a couple of weeks ago, and I was walking with a friend, and he said, Oh, I remember that message, Pastor Bill. That's where you told us all we're supposed to be poor. That's not what I said. That is not what I said. Please hear me. I am not talking about a vow of poverty. I'm not asking you to take a vow of poverty. I'm not even talking about living a life of simplicity, you know, cleaning out your closets, you know, living a little simpler life. I'm not talking about that because, quite frankly, a vow of poverty and a life of simplicity makes it all about you. And we're not talking about that. We're talking about it being all about Jesus Christ and us lavishing his love on others. It's a heart issue. And that's what we're talking about. Having a church that is inflamed with the passion of Christ to meet the needs of others. And when the world sees this unity and diversity and this unusual, irrational, irrational generosity, they don't know what to make of it. Something's happening. And it's not normal. It's super normal. Last week when we were together, we talked about being a truthful church in a very confused world. It is by our love, our lives and love, for all peoples that they will want to be his disciples. I, I used this phrase last week, and I think it's so true. Truth is not a battle we win merely by making a better argument. It is a battle we win by living a better life. And that ultimately is a life of love, a life of love. Spiritual maturity is not merely in what we know, but it's in how we live. We must know the truth so that we can live the truth, so that we can share the truth of the gospel of God's love with others. Look at what happens if we get this right. If we get this right, our light is bright. We are not just not racist but we actually love each other. We are not just, you know, we're, we're not greedy and selfish and envious like the rest of the world, but we're generously giving. And we are not a bunch of obnoxious, arrogant people who know the truth and want to jam it down people's throats sideways. We love them. And we live the truth so that they can know the truth. His name is Jesus. So this is what we're talking about. Ultimately, friends, this is evangelism. It is living out the truth of the gospel and allowing it to shape our lives in such a way that we become a light in a very dark world, becoming attractive for the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, again, I said this last week, but I, I, I think it's so true. True biblical community, usens together, living this out. True biblical community is the final apologetic it is our last and our best argument before a lost and a skeptical world. 
if we ever hope to reach our friends, our neighbors, and our community with the only message that can save their souls, it will be by be showing them the difference Jesus makes in our lives before them by being God's new humanity on earth. This is what we're talking about. This is how we make progress down this pathway of being a light in a dark, dark world. Well, today, we will carry on with these thoughts about being a very uniquely different church in a very um, uh, dark world. And today, we're going to talk about the idea of being a serving church, a serving church in a selfish world. Well, I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer because we are about to go uh, where no man has ever gone before. This star date is, no, I'm just kidding, uh, but we're going to go down a difficult pathway, and I just want to ask God's uh, assistance through this process. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for having compassion and mercy and grace upon us. There's not one person in this house, and me included, that deserves the least of your kindnesses. For we have been living in rebellion against you. Injustice demands that we be eternally separated from you. But we are so grateful that you pursued us. You took the initiative to restore us. You died for us. And the Spirit of God woos us. And we just thank you so much for loving us. Father, as we're about to walk into some very heady stuff, some very difficult stuff, I pray that you would just prepare our hearts. Uh, again, it's only by your grace that we make progress. But help us to be willing to make progress, I pray. In Jesus' name, and the people of God said, Amen. Amen. What I'd like to do in the next few moments together is simply this. Uh, I would like to highlight and contrast the differences between the world's focus on ourselves and the kingdom of God's focus on others. Now, this will not be easy. Uh, it is going to take humility. It is going to take self-sacrifice. And it's going to even take something called suffering. And it's going to go against everything in us as well as the constant messaging of our world. So what we're about to hear is that which you will never hear apart from the revelation of God's word. Take your Bibles. Join me this morning as we consider together this first contrast, greatness in our world versus greatness in God's kingdom. Take your Bibles and join me today in Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, and we're going to look at this uh, episode in the life of Jesus. Uh, I just want to say my habit is to give you the verses up here, and I can work with them up here. But I always want to encourage you to bring your own Bible, please. Uh, I want to make sure that you have a copy of God's Word that you can feel and highlight and work. And even date, you know, these, these truths were given on this date. And it will help you in the future to look back and be able to go back to that and actually allow it to touch you, maybe when you're more ready for it than you are even now. So please, uh, do bring a Bible, do use it, and if you need one, see me. We would be happy to give you one. So here we go, Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 through 22, as we talk about greatness in the world versus greatness in God's kingdom. 
Now, this begins with a really strange little episode. So let's begin with this little episode. All right. Jesus says in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 20, See, we, he's speaking to the disciples, we are going to go up to Jerusalem. That's cool. They've been to Jerusalem many times. So they're on this pathway to Jerusalem. Jesus is at the end of his earthly ministry. And he goes on to say this. And I want you to understand, guys, the Son of Man, who's the Son of Man? Jesus. Okay, so Jesus is using the third person to talk about himself. That always kind of seems odd, doesn't it? You know, uh, Bill Walker said, well, wait a minute, you're Bill Walker. Okay, I said, okay, yeah. So Jesus is kind of using the third person here. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And they're going to deliver him over to the Gentile rulers, the Romans, and he'll be mocked, and he'll be flogged, and then they will use the most cruel device ever given to lengthen a death uh, through, through punishment, crucifixion, and then he will rise on the third day. So, they're getting ready to journey to Jerusalem. They've done this many times. And on the journey to Jerusalem, he says, hey, guys, we're going to Jerusalem. But what does he say is going to happen to him? Yes. <laughs> Whatever you he said, yes. He is going to be bludgeoned. He is going to be bloodied. He is going to be, uh, have stripes laid across his face. He is going to suffer. He is going to bleed. And he is going to die. He will rise again. Amen? But what he's saying, guys, is we're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to suffer. Do you want to know what the disciples heard? What they heard was, hey, we're going to go up to Jerusalem and wah, 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 wah. It's almost like a peanuts, you know, little thing there with Charlie Brown sitting there listening to his teacher. He's like, what did you say? They didn't hear what Jesus said. Let me show you what they did hear. Okay, here we go. Hey, guys, we're going to go up to Jerusalem. Just a few verses before this in Matthew chapter 19, he told them this. And truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who follow me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's what they heard. We're going to Jerusalem. Awesome. That means we get to sit on thrones. We're all going to sit on thrones. This is so cool. I get my throne. You see, what they caught was... We're going to go to Jerusalem, and we're going to live there with Jesus, and we're going to serve and oversee the tribes. They thought he was going up to Jerusalem to sit down on the throne, and they were going to serve with him. You see, they thought the kingdom was coming. But what they didn't hear was, wait a minute. Matthew chapter 13 has seven parables telling us the kingdom's not going to come like that. It's actually going to come slowly. It's going to be a progression. It's actually going to take some time, and it's going to be hard. They didn't hear him say that he was going to die, even though he already told him three other times. Isn't it funny? All they could really see and concentrate on was the good stuff. But when it came to the suffering, they didn't ever seem to register that. Isn't it interesting how the disciples are just like us? Have you ever noticed that? You know, in our lives, what we often hear is this. What we hear is, oh, oh okay. So, so um, I'm, in, I'm lost in my sin, and I don't like the way my life is going. And, and so if I will but turn from my sin, which is unrighteousness, and my, my self-righteousness, 
If I turn from that stuff, if I repent of it, and I embrace Jesus Christ with my life, I will be saved. That means I'm given eternal life, and I'm going to spend forever together with Jesus. Amen? That's true. Say it. Yes. Amen? So what that called is this. It's called justification by faith, and it's called glorification. We get that part. We like those parts. Justification by faith means I get saved, and glorification means I get to spend forever with Jesus. But what we forget is the middle. It's like Titus chapter 2. Verse 11 says this, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Yeah! And a little later it says this, Waiting for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Yes! But between those two things it says this, Oh, the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. To live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. We're going to suffer? You mean, by embracing Jesus, I don't only get eternal life glorification, but I actually follow him with my life, and I'm walking the narrow path with him, and it winds and it twists, and it's uphill into the wind, and it hurts, and it's not easy, and there's self-sacrifice, and there's suffering? Yeah! But just like these guys... We're going to Jerusalem. We're going to have thrones. And they miss the whole suffering part of Jesus. And we need to be careful that we understand that the life of following Christ involves justification by faith and glorification by his grace. Amen? But it also involves sanctification. This process of hardship, this process of of difficulty, this process of suffering, even self-sacrifice, These guys are just like us in so many, many ways. And so um, this opens up with this interesting episode. The reason why I know they were thinking that and didn't hear what Jesus said is because of what follows. Here we go. This is what follows. It says, and then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to Jesus with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. Now, we know from the other scriptures that the mother of Zebedee, uh, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, is none other than Salome. Now, Salome happens to be, we know from other scriptures, the sister of Mary, the mother of, the earthly mother of Jesus. So what we have here is Jesus' aunt coming up, kneeling down out of respect for her nephew, bringing her sons, James and John, Jesus' earthly cousins in the flesh. And she comes up to him, and she has a request. And he said, well, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine, your cousins, James and John, That one might sit at your right hand and one at your left hand in the kingdom to come. You see, again, they're still focused on this idea of the thrones. They're still focused on the reality that they're going to reign with Christ. And what she's saying is this, you know, why don't you just let the boys have have their positions? Why don't you put James in your right hand and John on your lap? Just let them sit right next to the power of authority because you're Jesus, the son of man. Do you know what this is called? What she's doing? This is the way the world works. What she's doing is something called nepotism. 
Nepotism is that, that, that way in which you give to family members positions of authority or jobs or power who did not necessarily earn them, but they get them because you're related to them. This is the way the world tends to work. Because I know you, I'm going to give you a position of authority or a job because, not necessarily because you're the best or the right person, but because you're related to me. So nepotism is what she's trying to pull off here. In just a minute, you're going to see how Jesus says that ain't the way it works. But let me tell you a little bit about nepotism. It was curious. I, I looked up the word. The word nepotism actually comes from the Italian. And it goes back to about the 17th century. Uh, and it's connected to the popes in Rome. Because popes are celibate, which means they cannot have their own children. What the popes would do is they would take their nephews of their sisters or their brothers, and they would treat them as if they were their own sons. And so what the popes would do is they would take their nephews and they would put them into the Catholic Church's cardinals, if you will, because the pope is somebody and these guys are his family. He's, he's, he's stalking up the cardinals with his family. What do the cardinals do? They ultimately vote on who's the next pope. Oh, hi. That's very convenient. So, in effect, what the popes were doing, they were trying to create family dynasties, which would mean that the popeship would flow through the family, and they did that through nepotism. It got really wonky uh, when one of these popes actually took a 14-year-old and a 16-year-old nephew and made them cardinals. Well, a cardinal was supposed to be like these old men who were like of the highest regard in the church, and he put kids in there. And it kind of all got really weird from there, and they started not allowing it to happen. But interesting, isn't it? How nepotism is something she's talking about in the kingdom. Nepotism is something that actually went on in the Catholic Church. And nepotism continues to be a problem in the church. Do you know how many churches have their spouses on staff paid? You know how many churches have their sons on staff paid? You know how many churches have their family members on staff paid? It, it happens all the time. Ever heard of Lakewood Church? Joel Olstein is the son of the founder, John Olstein. They have created a mega church, which is truly a, a, mega, fam, a mega family enterprise or a dynasty. They have created their own family church that a lot of other people attend. That's not the way it's supposed to work. Can I just say that the church does not belong to any one man. The church does not belong to any one family. And the church does not belong to any one group. The church belongs to Jesus Christ. And when we start putting all our family in positions, paying them with the money that comes in through the offerings designed to forward the gospel in, in this world, the advancement of the kingdom of God, what we end up doing is nepotism. And that just stinks. It smells bad. It looks bad. And I think it can also hinder the work of Christ. So what Jesus is basically saying here is, verse 22, And Jesus answered, you have no idea what you're asking to dear Salome's aunt. You, are you indeed able to drink of the cup that I am about to, to drink? 
So what Jesus is saying to his aunt and to his cousins, James and John, is simply this. It does not work that way in the kingdom of God. It works that way in the world all the time, but it does not work that way in the kingdom. Positions of authority in the kingdom to come are based upon not family connections, but based upon faithfulness to the Lord. That is what causes someone to have a position of authority in the kingdom. It's not family connections, it's faithfulness. Now, let me walk this back just a bit so I don't get us confused, please. Your salvation is based upon faith in Jesus Christ alone, not what you do. It's not on your faithfulness. Your salvation is based upon your faith in Jesus Christ alone. But your position and your possessions in the kingdom to come are based upon your faithfulness to Jesus. I need to make this careful here because I'm going to turn things into a works righteousness and I don't want to do that. There's only one way to get righteousness and that's faith alone in Christ alone who gives you the righteousness that he alone has. But in him... We now become faithful. Another way of putting it is this. Your destiny is based on what you do with Jesus, to trust him or to not trust him. Your position and possessions are based upon what you do for Jesus. So I'm trying to say there is a difference between faith in Jesus alone, apart from your works for salvation, and your faithfulness to follow and obey Jesus for your rewards. I happen to believe that if your faith in Jesus is sincere and real, that it will ultimately lead to a life of faithfulness in Jesus. But I just feel like I need to be careful to make that delineation. Okay. It doesn't work that way. Sorry, guys. It doesn't work that way. Are you really able to drink of the cup that I am going to drink? And they said what? Hey, dude, Jesus, we're good. We're good. Now, again, you need to know what they're thinking. You see... I can see them saying this, Jesus, you know that three years ago you called us to follow you and we left our father's boat and fishing business. It stunk anyway. I didn't like fish. And these last three years with you have been awesome. Crowds of cheering fans, miracles, casting out of demons, sticking it to the religious establishment. It's been cool. This has been awesome, Jesus. Sure, we're able. But again, they really had no idea what Jesus was saying. Because faithfulness, true faithfulness, is going to require humility, self-sacrifice, and suffering. In fact, Jesus prophetically says this, Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Verse 23, you will drink my cup. They didn't know what he meant then. But what ended up happening is this. James, one of the brothers, was executed Early in Herod Agrippa, early on in the life of the church by Herod Agrippa, uh, the grandson of Herod the Great in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. John, the other brother, lived out a full life, but he was persecuted and imprisoned for much of it. So they would indeed drink of the cup of Jesus' suffering. But Jesus went on to say this, but listen, guys, to sit at my right hand and at my left hand is not even mine to grant, but it is for those to whom the Father uh, has been prepared by my Father. Even with your lives of faithfulness, God the Father alone knows who will have these ultimate positions of authority. 
So, this is how the world works. This is how the world works. It's about favors. It's about getting privileges. It's about family connections. It's about manipulation. And you know how it always seems to wind up? People wind up upset. Notice what it goes on to say. And when the other ten disciples heard about it, they were so happy for them because they knew they were worthy. Man, they were furious. You know why they're so mad? Because they didn't think of it first. They all wanted the right and left hand of Jesus in the, in the kingdom to come. Just being on one of the other thrones wasn't good enough. So what I want to say again is Jesus is talking about the way the world works the way the world works, and it's all about me. It's all about selfishness. It's about manipulation, the currying of favors, nepotism, self-seeking for the best positions, and the result is usually people are upset. This is how the world seeks greatness, but it is not how it works in the kingdom of God. Continuing. The kingdom of God, greatness in the kingdom of God entails humility. But Jesus called them together to himself and he said, you know, listen guys, the rulers of the Gentiles, the way the world works is they lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. So this is the paradigm of the world's greatness. It looks like this. Here is the CEO. Here is the, the, the mega church pastor. Here is the top dog. This is the guy who fought his way to the top and stepped on a bunch of bodies to climb the ladder. This is the world's idea of greatness. You are at the pinnacle of greatness when you have more people under you who can do your bidding. This is how it works in the world. But what does Jesus say? It shall not be so among you. It doesn't work this way, guys. In fact, whoever wants to be great among you in the kingdom of God must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your, what's the word? So what Jesus does is he takes the world's paradigm of greatness and he literally flips it over and puts it like this. This is greatness in the kingdom. This is greatness in the kingdom. It is to be at the lowest point to meet the needs of the greatest number of people possible. This is greatness in the kingdom. It is somebody who makes himself a servant or even a slave to the needs of others. I love what a man by the name of Lenski said. One of my commentators I so enjoy, he said this. He said, God's great men are not sitting on top of lesser men, but they are bearing lesser men on their backs. That's greatness in the kingdom. Mark my words, when we get to the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat judgment for believers, not for eternity, whether or not you have eternal life, that's settled here and now through uh, faith in Christ. But when we get to the Bema seat, which uh, judges the issue of our works and our faithfulness, I want you to know that the first are going to be last, and the last are going to be first. That these mega church people and all these people who build their empires on other people's backs, that these people will be at the back of the line. And some poor person who's in the middle of nowhere, who have sacrificed greatly to work and to share the gospel with a group of people in the middle of nowhere, they're going to be at the front of the line in the kingdom. That's how it works. 
That's how it works. The paradigm is absolutely upside down in the kingdom. So if we start to live like this, don't you think people would take notice? I mean, you're such a smart individual. You're obviously very gifted. You're very capable. Why are you serving this person like this? That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't work that way in the world, but it works that way in the kingdom. It works that way in the kingdom. So it's about humility. Greatness in the kingdom is about humility. But secondly, the greatness in the kingdom is, is about self-sacrifice. It is about self-sacrifice. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. The word servant in the original language is diakonos. It is the word we get deacon from. So be your servant. A deacon is a servant, a helper, a waiter of tables. Uh, modern vernacular, we're talking about a volunteer. We're talking about a volunteer. It is a level of service whereby we still maintain control, and it's based upon our choice and convenience. And can I say that in our world, volunteerism, PTA, Scouts, Little League, etc., is cool? It is. Everybody volunteers today because that's the right thing to do, right? But volunteerism still is a level of control. I choose what I want to volunteer, and I do what I want to do, and if it fits my calendar, my schedule, that's cool. So everybody gives a little volunteer hours because it's just the right thing to do. But Jesus goes on to say this, but you know in the kingdom, whoever would be first among you must be your, what's the word? That's the word. It is the Greek word doulos, slave. It pertains to a state of being completely controlled by another, devoted to another to the disregard of one's own interest. Modern vernacular. A slave is somebody who is a living martyr. Say that again. A slave is someone who is a living martyr. Somebody who dies daily to one's own desires and interests for the sake and the desires of another. That, my friends, is greatness in the kingdom. In our world, volunteering is cool. In the kingdom, to actually put yourself aside and your schedules and your desires for the sake of another is considered great. So, kingdom greatness is about humility. Kingdom greatness is about self-sacrifice. And like it, and we don't, kingdom greatness is about suffering. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. You say, whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as. Jesus now is equating himself to that last statement. Even as the Son of Man himself didn't come to be served by others, but rather to serve others, and that was ultimately to give his life up for the sake of them. So what Jesus is saying is this. In the world, it's all about you. In the world, it's all about positions of authority. In the world, you manipulate. In the world, you, you strive for the highest positions. It doesn't work that way in the kingdom. In the kingdom, it's about humility. In the kingdom, it's about self-sacrifice. In the kingdom, it's about suffering. And Jesus Christ led the way. And if we say we follow him, we're following him into self-sacrifice and suffering. This is greatness. This is greatness in the kingdom. In fact, even the Apostle Paul put it this way in Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he, Jesus, was in the very form God, indeed, the second person of the Trinity, 
He did, not account, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but rather let go. And he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. Now, some of your translations will say a servant, but it's the word doulos. He gave up the prerogatives of his own life to the Father. And thus, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death, even a death on the cross. Let me contrast for you. Greatness in our world and greatness in the kingdom. Here we go. Greatness in the world is about manipulation, the currying of favors, nepotism, self-seeking for the best positions, and always results in people being upset and anger. That's how the world seeks greatness. Greatness in the kingdom is about humility, self-sacrifice, and suffering. So as followers of Jesus Christ, we are to be daily martyrs. We take up our cross daily as an instrument of death, and we spend our lives, our time, our talent, our treasures, our energies, and our resources for the benefit of others to the glory of God. Now's a good time to say amen. That, my friends, is truth. That, my friends, is hard truth. We all like the idea of being saved. Oh, I'm right with God. We all like the idea of, of being in heaven forever, amen? But it's the journey, a journey of sanctification, a journey of selflessness, a journey of suffering, a journey of putting others' needs ahead of our own. This is the path we've been called to walk as the people of God. The disciples didn't get it until after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Maybe some of us are just kind of getting it for the first time right now. Um... I want to put before you an opportunity, and we as a church are seeking to position this uh, in the life of the church at this point in 2017 because it's important to the fulfilling uh, of what we uh, believe is God's calling on our church. And it, it is this upcoming ministry breakfast. Uh, it is happening uh, again next Saturday at 9 o'clock in the morning. As we talk about selfless service, as, as we talk about sacrifice, as we talk about all these hard things, I just want to say to you, we need you. We need every single one of you. What we need is all hands on deck. Because the reality is this, friends. Why is it such an austere life? Why is it so hard? Why is it so serious? What is all that about? We're at war. This is the truth. And I'm not talking about Al-Qaeda. We are at war over the souls of men and women. We are at war against spiritual wickedness in high places. Paul said this, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand uh, against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness. We're trying to be a light against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. We are in a battle. And we need all the soldiers we can get and all the resources we can get to be marshaled to the front to meet the needs of a world that is dying without Jesus Christ. This is the truth. This is the reality we live in. Let me share with you one last 
difference. We talked about um, greatness in the world and greatness in the kingdom, but let's talk a little bit about the mission of the world versus the mission of God's kingdom. They're very different, and I think this video captures it. The world's mission versus God's kingdom mission. The world's mission, quite frankly, is it's all about me. Thank you, gentlemen. It's all about me. It's about me having a good time in life, about me having fun. Let's not take life too seriously. You know, I'm going to do my own thing. And when everything's said and done, I die and go into the ground like a dog, right? There's no future. That's it. I'm just going to have a good time while I'm here. But that's not the mission of God's kingdom. God's kingdom mission is radically different. We have a commander, and that commander is Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords, and he calls us through eternal election and personal selection to be indeed uh, his drafted ones into his service. We are his disciples. That's the term used in the Jewish context of the Gospels. Or, as Paul would use in the Gentile Roman world, we are his losses. That's how it's put in the epistles. So, we have a commander. We have been drafted into his service. We are, in fact, behind enemy lines. Uh, we are called strangers and aliens in a world that is in rebellion against our Father and his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We have an extremely powerful foe. 
Uh, it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. We have a commission, and our commission is Matthew 28, 19, go and make followers, disciples of all nations. That's our marching orders. And we have a commitment, and it's a commitment to one another to equip one another for the work of the ministry, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the full measure of the stature of the fullness of Jesus Christ. The world is persuasive. The world dominates our thinking. Its messaging is everywhere. And our old nature resonates with it. It's in the culture because it comes out of our nature. But Jesus said it's not that way in the kingdom. In the kingdom of God, it's not about you having your own life. You've been bought with a price. Now it's up to glorifying God. We are called to be servants, slaves of Jesus. And we are to take this life extremely seriously because it's not just about having fun on a lovely cruise ship. It is about winning a battle, a battle for the souls of men and for women. That's what we're doing here. That's what we're asking you to be a part of. This is not just come and sit and clap and go church. This is a church that wants to be on mission. This is a church that wants to make a difference in our community. And it's only going to happen if we get it. If we do it right, we will be a very bright light in this lost and broken world. So again, I want to invite you to come out this coming Saturday to get on mission. We need all hands on deck. We have so many things we need to do to build up this body to make us strong and healthy. We need everybody. We have everything we need from God sitting right here. The challenge is for us to be obedient. And I want to challenge you to be obedient. Before I close in a word of prayer, I'm going to invite Dennis to come on up, and he's going to welcome a few individuals into membership, and I don't know that they really know what they've gotten themselves into. <clears throat> you. 